Well, coming up on the program, we are going to have plenty of reaction to the announcement that it will be mandatory for workers in all long-term care facilities in BC to be vaccinated. It is a term now of an of employment and will need to be done by October 12th. We're going to talk to a couple of the unions that represent thousands of healthcare workers. Also coming up on the program, the election, the federal election. As you've been hearing in the news, much speculation. Justin Trudeau is going to visit the Governor General on Sunday, and that could see Canadians going to the polls in a federal election on September 20th. We're getting lots of reaction to that as well. Right now, though, this is something we've been working on for a couple of weeks, wanting to tackle this question. It came to me via email from a listener. We were talking about employment and how people had been, in some cases, in many cases, changing careers during the pandemic or deciding maybe their line of work wasn't all that secure given the pandemic and looking for a different line of work that wouldn't be so vulnerable. So I received this email from a listener. It says, hi, Jill. Since my job ended at the beginning of the pandemic, I am at a loss for what to do next. The challenge is much more daunting for those of us who are over 50. We have much fiercer competition with younger people who can readily adapt to fast-paced tech. I wish there were local resources for how to reinvent oneself at this age. So we're going to talk about that and joining me to talk more about how you can make a career change at 50 plus. Tips for that is Jody Caston, General Manager and Vice President of Sales at Indeed.com. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. How do you even start to approach it if you are 50 plus in the age group and you're feeling a little overwhelmed by the competition when it comes to people younger? How do you even start? Yeah, so I think a couple things. I think you need to ask yourself a few questions. Um, First, why do you want to have a career change? Um, Sometimes it's forced upon us and then other times we just feel like we're, we're done with the industry or the job that we're in. So is it about satisfaction? Is it about stress levels? Um, so really understanding what it is about your current job that or industry that you're in that you're not enjoying. And then um, secondly, it's thinking about what is it that you want to do and what, in, what industry maybe would you like to, to move into? What are some of the skills that you have that might be transferable and you can move to a different job or a different discipline or a different industry? Um, So I think these are all questions that um, we need to ask ourselves before we just jump into something and say, oh, I would really love to go over and, and, and do something completely different. And once you've answered those questions and you've decided that, yes, you maybe would still like to try and do a career change or you're being forced into it, like this listener whose job ended at the beginning of the pandemic, what do you do then? Yeah, so I think um, you need to do your research just in terms of who might be hiring. Uh, So right now, we know as a result of the pandemic that the service industry is looking to uh, hire people as, you know, we're we're getting back out there and and participating in life again. The healthcare industry certainly is hiring. Um, So really give it some thought and think about um, which industries might be hiring. Also think about the type of work that you want to do. Are you open to shift work? Are you open to perhaps working on the weekend? Um, can you be flexible? Um, you know, what, what does your home situation look like? Um, and what do you need from that perspective? Um, and then if you have some ideas, leverage your network, talk to your friends and family, talk to other people that you've worked with or friends perhaps that you know in 
a particular industry and set up informational interviews to learn a little bit more about that particular job or that particular industry and what it's like to work there. So do your research, a lot to to be done, kind of your due diligence before jumping in. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, this listener also wrote saying uh, she was concerned or she was told that resumes now are can be read by algorithms, not humans, and that uh, that's a, a bit of a, a hurdle. What do you suggest or what advice do you give people as far as making sure you have a resume that stands out? Yeah, so um, that's actually a really good point. Um, a lot of the resumes are in resume database, like on Indeed.com. And so I would recommend that um, people uh, put their digital resume out there um, so that employers can find you, um, as well as it makes it easier for you to apply for jobs online or even on your mobile phone. Um, and be really clear about what your skills are. If you have any certif- certifications or degrees, that's really important to make sure that you're highlighting that. Any kind of data is really important to basically, you know, showcase what you've done in the past. Um, and all of those things will uh, will come through. And when you look at experience, like you said, if somebody is making a shift to something completely different, make sure and research that, know if that's what you want to do. How difficult is it, though, if a potential employer is looking at your life experience and sees that you really don't have all that much experience, if any experience, in this field of work? Yeah, so I think a couple things. I think, um, you know, you, you need to understand, are there any certifications? Do you need to go back to school? Do you need to get any kind of retraining? The one thing that I will tell you about um, employers today and with the labor market that we're in, um, employers are always looking for good talent and reliable talent. Um, And so I think that's also something as you're going through the interview process um, and anything that you can demonstrate on your resume or offer any kind of cover letters to talk about, you know, how dependable you are um, and some of the other soft skills. Because at the end of the day, employers really just want to hire people that can do the job and are going to stick with it. Right. So it might be, even if you don't have the experience, if you come across as somebody who's going to pick it up quickly and is ready to stay and wants to make a commitment to it, that might even be worth more. Exactly. And and if you're willing to learn, um, you know, pick a couple of examples from your previous work experience where, um, you know, you were new to something and, and you learned it pretty quickly and you picked it up and you were able to to demonstrate success. I saw a a job ad the other day and it was a local restaurant and they were advertising for a dishwasher, but it stuck out to me because the ad specifically said, we're looking for a senior, somebody perhaps who's retired and just wants to get back in and do some part-time work. And they said, because they have a a very mature kitchen, which at first I thought I wasn't sure you could even actually do that. But it also found, I found it strange that they were actually asking for somebody to come out of retirement to join their workforce. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot um, just because, you know, if everybody's in a different circumstance and so not everybody needs to, to put in 40 hours a week. And so for some employers, that actually works out a little bit better. And, and you get employees who, um, you know, make the commitment to, to actually want to do the job and they use it as a little bit of a, a social outlet and not just uh, for a paycheck. And you mentioned to the resume database, what else can people do? And especially, I think, if somebody doesn't consider themselves hugely technically savvy, is it worth, I guess, taking a class in that or making sure um, you maybe hone those skills that you're, you're not all that comfortable with? 
Yeah, or, um, you know, you can also ask a friend. You can ask um, somebody who uses Indeed.com or is able to search for jobs online. Um, and, and that might be uh, helpful as well um, to get somebody to show you how to do it. A lot of the, the world now is online and it is, uh, it is pretty digital. Um, so from that perspective, in terms of applying for jobs, um, it would be good to get somebody to, to show you how to do it. Um, and, you know, I think also, um, you know, during the interview process, I think it's really important to focus on the skills and less so on uh, how technically savvy uh, you are or you aren't. And one other question, do you find, do people tend to undersell themselves or how much of an issue is that in that you might have something you've done in your past or something that you don't think is all that important, but it might actually stick out and show you and and kind of put you in a different group from others that are applying for the job? How do you know kind of what information to put out there? Yeah, so that's actually a really good point. And so I think this goes back to doing your research and preparing. Um, so instead of applying for 50 jobs and hoping hoping that somebody gets back to you for an interview, um, you know, really think about what are your skills and maybe write it down on a piece of paper. Um, what could your value be to an employer? What did you do in the past? Um, and what were some of those uh, highlights and skills that you have? And then that might actually give you a better idea so that you can hone in on um, the jobs and the industries where people are um, looking to hire right now. And that is something that you can then tailor your resume towards and then also tailor your conversation um, once you get in front of that hiring manager um, to really highlight and talk about what you've done in the past. Examples and data are so important. Um, and a lot of people really forget about that. They, you know, they write down what, what they've done in terms of, you know, I was a, an administrative assistant, um, but they don't list all of the skills um, and use data, data points. And, and that really is something that will set you apart from everybody else. All right. Good advice. Jody Kasten, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. This was just mentioned on the news. Vancouver Coastal Health's canine scent detection team is now detecting COVID-19. And joining me to talk more about this, Dr. Martha Charles, head of the Division of Medical Microbiology and Infection Prevention and Control at Vancouver Coastal Health. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you so much, Jill, for having me today. Well, they're beautiful dogs, just looking at them, but also providing this great service. So what can these dogs actually do when it comes to sniffing out COVID-19? Yeah, so right now, as you said, we have three dogs that got trained and validated to detect COVID-19 on three different types of samples. So they can detect it out of sweat, gargles, and also breath samples. So it's pretty amazing. And how will this benefit the health authority? Yeah, so at this point, um, we're just really happy to see that the proof of concept works. So we'll be in communication with uh, Health Canada and also all of the different stakeholders to try to see how can we best apply the dogs. But that will be part of phase two. All right. So this sounds similar. And I know we've done stories in the past when dogs have been used in in sniffing out C. difficile in hospitals. So would it be similar to that? So I'm really glad that you're bringing that up. So, yes, we've built up on our expertise with the C. diff program. So similarly to what was done with the C. difficile program, we're, we're hoping to be able to use the dog for screening of COVID-19 positive patients. 
So do you envision that they would be able to, I mean, would the dog have to actually have access to a test or to one of those materials you mentioned, or would they be able to go up to somebody and somehow know whether or not that person is, has COVID-19 or not? Yeah. So right now, um, if you look into the different jurisdiction, what other people have done is they've been using the dogs in airports and also for sporting events. So really, at this point, we really wanted to be able to show from, you know, the most rigorous scientific way that the dogs were really accurate. So we've reached that goal and we're super and like super happy about that. So the next step will be to try to determine what would be the best use. So lineup is one possibility, but also being able to screen the environment of people, uh, just like we've been doing with the C-Div dog, would also be a possibility. So they could go into, say, a, a part of a hospital or a part of a, part of a care center or a room and know if there is COVID-19 present in there? So, yeah, so that's one of the things that we're investigating right now, how best to use the dog. And that really will be like our primary focus for the phase two. So as part of our um, collaboration with Health Canada, we got a grant of $200,000 to really complete that proof of concept. So we, we've reached that goal. And once we really know how and where we're going to be able to deploy the dogs, we'll make sure to make it public. All right. The the dogs we're talking about right now, as I mentioned, uh, one or two Labradors, as well as uh, an, I think it's an English Springer Spaniel being used as part of this program. What is it about those particular dogs, do you know, that makes them well suited for this? Yes, it's a good question. So I can speak to a little bit about how we choose the dogs, but Teresa is really our expert. We're a multidisciplinary team here, and she's involved in choosing those dogs. But one of the main things that she looks for in those dogs is to have like a high drive. So they need to be highly motivated to work. And normally it's fun for them to be doing that work and they get rewarded with food. So you need a dog that is driven by food. The other thing too is you want to make sure that it's dogs that are um, working well with people. That makes sense. So you don't want uh, anything that's going to scare people off or maybe not be exactly. or not food driven. Uh, Labrador is definitely a good choice for the food driven <laughs> dogs, for sure. Uh, so, so, and, and how long of a process was it then? And again, I know it based on the C. difficile type training as well, but it seems like it would be no short uh, task to train dogs to do this. How long was that process to get them to a place where, like you said, you want to make sure that the, those dogs are 100% accurate? Exactly. So for us, um, I, I just want to kind of point out that we're a bit different from other jurisdictions that have gone into that adventure, right? So the, the dog that we've been using were not previously trained on a different odor. So they were completely naive to any scent when we got them. So it took us since, I want to say we started end of January, so uh, six to seven months really to complete the whole process. But the third dog that we got, Yoki, the lab, uh, was way faster because it was a bit of a nat- uh, you know, an adjustment in the beginning to try to really figure out which sample type we wanted to use. So, yeah, I would say anywhere between four to six months, uh, 
made us really uh, successful. So the last validation, the dog showed a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity ranging between 93% to 95%. Wow, that's very impressive. When you're actually training the dogs, and, and if you don't have the answer to this, that's fine, but I'm just curious, are you actually using then samples of the virus, the live virus? Because that, I would imagine it has to be done in a very controlled environment then. Yeah. So I I guess for us, it's really an asset in our team that, you know, myself as a medical microbiologist, I have access to a lot of patient samples, both patients that are infected and patients that are healthy. So in our process to create the training aid scent, we make sure that it's a safe sample for training of the dog. So um, it shouldn't take, like, we're not taking any risk here uh, with our handlers and with the dogs. Right. That that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, so like you said, this now goes into or there's the next phase. Is there a timeline for as things or how things are, are going to unfold? So, yeah, we would like to see this happen as quickly as possible. But, you know, um, we're in conversation with uh, Health Canada right now, trying to engage all of the different stakeholders that might be interested by this project. So, I, I mean, we'll have to take the time that is needed to really take great and best decision in terms of how to deploy the dog. Right, because do you see this too? I mean, we're talking about them being trained within the health authority, but do you see this being expanded in that dogs, or maybe this is being done in other countries as well, they could be in places like cruise ship terminals or airports or other places where there is that concern as well? So you're bringing a lot of valid uh, suggestions here. So those are exactly the conversation that we're having with Health Canada right now. So I'm really like hoping that this will be the start of a really great adventure and hoping that it's not going to be just provincial, but national. So I'm really looking forward to the future here. All right. Well, it's fascinating work and that it can be done uh, four to six months uh, going from scratch to teaching the dogs how to identify these uh, samples. We'll leave it there for today. Uh, But Dr. Charles, thank you so much for joining us and for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. We are continuing to get reaction on today's announcement that COVID-19 vaccinations will now be mandatory for all workers in BC's long-term care and assisted living facilities. Let's find out what people are saying about this. And joining me now is Paul Finch, Treasurer with the BC General Employees Union. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, uh, thanks a lot for having me, Uh, Paul, about how many people or can you say how many members uh, of your union would be affected by this would work in these facilities? Yeah, so of about over 23,000 BCG members that work in the, the healthcare sector, we have around uh, just over 5,500 members that are will be affected by, by this order. And what's your response to the order? So from the beginning, um, you know, we've really encouraged full vaccination. We, we run programs with our membership uh, as well as with the general public encouraging that vaccination. Um, right now, around it being mandatory, we're engaging in a dialogue with our membership about uh, their views on it, and we're also engaging in a dialogue with the government to fully understand the implications. It's unclear to us what happens uh, after October 12th for people that aren't vaccinated or, uh, importantly, those people who cannot be medically vaccinated. These are really important questions, but one of the key issues here for us is that um, vaccination is probably the most important tool we have to fight COVID, but it, it's not the only one. And so, you know, really critically, there's we want the government to go to reinstate the mask mandate, but we also want them to reinstate single site orders. And and to just explain quickly what that means, um, three weeks ago, 
single-site orders were relaxed. And that means that uh, at a certain point in this pandemic, the, the government mandated that if you were a healthcare worker, you couldn't hop around and work at multiple facilities. And, and this is normal in this industry. Um, the wages, the compensation is pretty low, and so people are forced to work at multiple facilities to make ends meet. But what's happened is, is that at relaxing this order, we're finding that a lot of people are forced to work at are basically uh, on casual shifts at multiple sites, and that's a huge vector for transmission, especially uh, in places like the interior where you've got relatively low vaccination rates to some other parts of the province. The other problem we have is that uh, unvaccinated work- workers in these facilities they're supposed to be um, PCR tested for COVID three times a week. We know that's not happening. We know directly from our membership that's not happening. And so, um, you know, we support uh, increased vaccination. We're, we're going to vigorously defend our members' uh, collective agreement rights. Uh, we're going to have a dialogue about what our position should be around mandatory vaccination. But really importantly, we think there's these really critical missing pieces that aren't being addressed. All right. I want to go through a bunch of things you just said there. So for the mask mandate, at this point, though, I know I've been in some healthcare settings where it is still required. It's not a please wear a mask. You have to wear a mask. So is that not the same or are there long term care facilities or extended care facilities where you don't have to wear a mask? Yeah, it's not. It's all over the place. The, the problem is, is that there's mixed messaging coming out. It's confusing for the public. It is not clear. We know that there are some sites where people go in without masks and other sites where they're forced to wear a mask and other sites where it's optional. Uh, and what we, I think what's really important here is, is that somebody is a member of the community, not just when they're at work. And so when we're looking at tackling the spread of COVID in, in these communities, it needs to be a community-wide approach. Um, it's incredibly critical that when that healthcare worker goes to the grocery store, that those mask protections are in place because that's going to impact uh, what happens when they go into the work site. With the single site orders being rescinded then, or people now going back to working at multiple sites, do you think maybe that's also part of the reason why we're seeing this announcement today, that it, it would be far more problematic to have an unvaccinated worker going to several different sites than it would to have a vaccinated worker? Well, we have unvaccinated workers going to several different sites, and this is part of the problem. And I'll, and I'll just clarify, when I say the single-site orders, they weren't rescinded, they were modified. Uh, so they're still in place, but the modifications mean that workers are now confined to a series of sites inside of a region, uh, not to a single site. So what we're saying is they need to be brought back to the single-site order because the series of sites in the same region isn't helping because actually these COVID outbreaks are regionalized. But uh, what we're saying is, is it's not... Uh, only uh, double vaccinated people that are going, uh, taking multiple shifts. As well, double vaccinated people can still spread COVID. Right. But you would think with the resident uptake in the in the vaccinations, I'm just trying to, to figure out what the thought process behind that, opening it up to working in multiple sites, even in the same region. If the thought process is if the vast majority of the residents are vaccinated and if the worker is vaccinated, then even though you might have some levels, you might be asymptomatic and carrying it, you're probably not going to pass it on in a way that you're probably not going to cause an outbreak or kill someone. No, you're, you're, you can still pass it on. And this is what's important. If you're double vaccinated, you're, less, you're much less likely to pass it on. You're less likely to pass it on to people, uh, health, regular healthy people. But people in a lot of these facilities who are immunocompromised or elderly, this kind of thing, they're often much more vulnerable and susceptible to that transmission. Um, and, and so I think one of the drivers behind this uh, always is that 
Um, it's, a, it's a lot more expensive to, to keep these single site orders in place. We think the expense is justified. Um, and that's because the, you basically, when you have single site orders, you need a lot more workers in the industry. We know that this pandemic has created a, a strain um, basically in the entire healthcare sector. And we, we just think that where, where there's a, a, a workforce uh, shortage, that uh, we just need um, better compensation to, to make that happen and make sure people are in place. If there's already a staff shortage, then what happens then come October 12th? And I know you said you're trying to get clarification yeah. on this, but if this is now a work mandated, a work mandated uh, term of employment. And if as of October 12th, you're going to be terminated if you're not fully vaccinated, is there not the potential there we could see even more staff shortages? There's a potential. I I think we're, it depends on how this is handled. And I think um, we need to be less worried about the staff shortages than we do about the standards of care, but but also of course the potential for, for further spreading COVID because that, Basically, the, the higher rates of transmission of the virus are what cause, uh, basically take more resources out of our health system and away from being able to help people. I mean, those resources can be reallocated sometimes within a health authority. Sometimes it's difficult to do that, but there's always a possibility to do that in emergency situations. But our capacity to do that and the health authority's capacity to do that is limited, uh, you know, when, um, when you've got a higher case count and a higher number of hospitalizations in particular, and that's what we're starting to see uh, at the beginning of this of this uh, Delta variant wave. And of course, I think hospitalizations are still relatively low, but we are seeing that uptake start to happen. Um, and so, I think it's important to it's more important to preserve these or bring back these single site orders uh, to protect people to to try and lower the hospitalizations, lower uh, these infections, especially where you've got uh, a breakout in in a healthcare facility. Some of these healthcare facilities. Uh, like I said, have low rates of vaccination amongst the workers themselves um, compared to other facilities in, in the interior in particular. And uh, the PCR testing isn't happening. So the unvaccinated workers are supposed to get PCR testing. They're not. Uh, so really, it's, it's multiple things. And so while we think uh, encouraging everyone to take vaccines is good, and, and we're, we're looking forward to that dialogue to find out more about what this means, um, the really critical pieces in between now and then are getting these other two two uh, pieces in place. If they're supposed to be getting PCR tested three times a week, why isn't that happening? So our understanding in, in interior health is that there's a, a, a kit shortage. Uh, there's problems with the distribution of the kits, uh, but we've heard rather directly from our members, in some cases members who uh, are directly involved in, in, in this, that um, uh, it's not happening. So we, we, can't, we, we know it's a known issue, uh, particularly, in, particularly in interior health. Uh, but it's obviously very concerning to us. It's very concerning to our workforce. I mean, our, you know, our members that work in the sector, uh, you know, really, really deeply care about the clients they work with and, and it's, their, their safety is of the utmost importance. All right. We'll leave it there. And I know you're still looking for some more clarification on some of these issues with this. But Paul Finch, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks very much for having me, Joe. We are announcing mandatory vaccination as a condition of employment for all workers in seniors in long-term care and seniors assisted living. This will apply to all licensed facilities, whether they are private, health authority owned and operated, or contracted facilities. That was the announcement made earlier today. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry. We are continuing to get reaction to this. And joining me now is Mike Old, Coordinator, Policy and Planning with the BC Hospital Employees Union. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you, Jill. What is your response to this mandatory vaccination policy? Well, you know, COVID-19 vaccines are proven to be safe and effective, and they've really helped us turn the corner in long-term care and assisted living in particular. Um, You know, our union has actively encouraged our members to get vaccinated. An overwhelming majority have done that. And, you know, more than that, getting vaccinated is a real act of solidarity with patients and residents and with those who can't get vaccinated for medical reasons, for example. So it's always been our position that education and access to vaccines is the key to improving vaccine update and it's preferable to a mandatory vaccination policy and until today that's also been the position of the provincial government and the public health officials so you know today the provincial health officer determined that mandatory vaccines are required in the context of the public health emergency and you know we'll encourage our members to follow her direction as we have throughout the pandemic. Uh, do you know how many people then, when you say it's there's been an overwhelming response by HEU members, do you know the percentage of members that have been vaccinated? Uh, we think it's up and around, just from our own internal polling, up and around the high 80s at this point, or it was a few weeks ago. So we think it actually is very, very high. I mean, what the, what public health officials have said is that in some regions of the province that, the, you know, at some sites, the vaccination levels are quite low. And I think that is what they're trying to address with this policy. You know, bringing in a mandatory vaccine mandate, it's a... It's a big stick, and uh, I think that one of our concerns about the policy change is it has the potential to compound a serious staffing crisis that's already undermining care and putting worker health and safety at risk. And, you know, we we recently polled our members, and about one out of four said that because of, uh, you know, their experience and the stress of the pandemic over the over the last 18 months that they're looking at leaving health care over the next two years. And, you know, there is some risk that a policy like this may may push some to leave their jobs altogether. And that would be that would be a shame. Um, you know, the provincial health officer obviously has access to lots of data and has determined that this is a necessary step right now. The government's kind of said to us that uh, we'll be provided with an opportunity to kind of meet with government and health employers and work through the labor relations implications of this policy. And we're looking forward to doing that and, you know, protecting our members' rights to the extent we can under this uh, public health emergency. But as it stands, is it your understanding then that with the October 12th deadline, if come October 13th, you're somebody who works in long-term care and you have refused to get vaccinated, is your employment terminated? Uh, the, the very clear message from the provincial health officer today was that you won't be working in a long-term care or assisted living facility if you're not fully vaccinated on October 13th. That's that's correct. The issue is, um, you know, what kind of accommodations will be possible for workers to uh, redeploy or accommodated because they've got uh, medical reasons for not being vaccinated or perhaps uh, human rights grounds like uh, religious beliefs. So we need to work out those details over the next few weeks. Uh, Dr. Henry also mentioned that discussions were underway as far as other uh, acute care centers and other health care facilities. Do you anticipate or have you been told at all that this type of mandate, uh, mandatory vaccination policy, will be extended to hospitals and other centers? 
No, we haven't been given any information that the media hasn't been given. But what we did learn today is that uh, the requirement that healthcare workers provide uh, information around their vaccine status, uh, that that will be extended to workers in uh, acute care settings like hospitals as well. So they're doing this um, in order to kind of monitor what the general situation is with vaccination levels around the province. I think, you know, many of uh, many, uh, many reporters at NW and elsewhere have asked about uh, the data around uh, vaccination rates in long-term care and hospitals. And I think that getting this data will help them provide more clear information. Right. But like you said, with the government, with with the information they have now, clearly they're seeing big gaps in some long-term care facilities where the vaccination rates are so low they had to bring in or they felt they needed to bring in a mandatory policy. Uh, well, that's that's what they said today. And I think they would know what the rates are because if there is an outbreak at a facility, they would be doing, you know, some testing and verification of the data. And that's probably why they know what the rates are in some of the sites. Uh, we were speaking with the, the BC General Employees Union as well, and they were talking about saying that in, in addition to this, they would like to see the mask mandate come back, it be a policy across the board, uh, that the single site order not be revised, that people can work, <clears throat> excuse me, can work in different facilities within one region. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So the there was an amendment to the single site order uh, last month, and the implication of that is that uh, in very very small um, clusters, this would be a cluster of two or three care homes um, that are geographically very close together. That fully vaccinated workers could go on the casual list at, at uh, one of these other two sites if they're fully vaccinated and can prove themselves to be so. You know that policy has just come into effect recently, and I would say I'm not even sure that it's actually in place in any, in any health authority at this moment. I've I know that some of them have just been established, but I'm not sure there's actually workers on casual lists yet. So the single site order itself is in place, and uh, we've had a very clear commitment that the wage leveling that has happened in the long-term care and assisted living sector uh, will continue through to the end of the year, and government's made a very clear commitment that wage leveling will continue beyond the end of the pandemic. So in terms of the wage leveling, um, you know, we're not concerned about that. In terms of the single site order, the, the ability to work within a very limited cluster is time limited. It expires on September 30th, so it will only be in place for a few weeks. And the intention is to, you know, help facilities who are dealing with a very, very dire staffing crisis during the summer months. All right, Mike Old, we'll leave it there. We're out of time for today, but thanks again for coming on the program. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time, Jill.